just loved loved to get off school to go fishing. If his daddy said to him, you know, oh, you have a half day, such and such, well, he would have said, can I get off to go fishing, daddy? Or if you're fishing the weekend, can I go with you? Which was very rare for daddy and them to fish the weekend or Michael, you know. But um, we Michael just, he lived for the fishing. And about, he was watching that perfect storm with George Clooney. It came out shortly before Daddy and then were killed. And um, he said to his mother, he says, Mummy, he says, you know, he says, whenever I get older, he says, and I become a captain of my ship, he says, my ship goes down, don't you cry, he says, because a captain goes with a ship. And then words are really haunt Kathleen to this day. Because, you know, she thinks to herself, you know, it wasn't that long before they did die that he had said this to her, and she was saying, thinking to herself, you try to interpret sort of things I'd said. Well, did he mean that because he knew something? Or silly, I know it's just probably silly, but you, everything goes through your head at a time like that. An air and sea search is continuing off the County Down coast for three members of a family who left the port of Kilkeel in a small fishing boat early yesterday morning. The Coast Guard says the disappearance of the vessel has been upgraded from an emergency to a mayday situation. Very calm, clear day. I mean, we've this, the sea and the cruel sea, and, and there's a sense of truth to that. that you, sea is unpredictable. You just never know. If something happens at home, you can, in a sense of sure, you can run. But at sea, there's nowhere to run to. There's a life raft, a lifeboat. There is nowhere to run. You're left to face the sea. They hadn't been out since the Christmas. Um, they were decommissioning. And the wee boy, and the three of them really, wanted to just have one more outing on the boat. And they decided they would go out on the 13th night, 14th morning. And um, that was it. They never come home. I was up that morning from 5 o'clock. Couldn't sleep. And... Um, there was nothing, nothing happened, nothing to draw your attention to anything, you know, that would have sort of been out of place. I watched all the boats going out, and you could even see the boats fishing off, you know, so there was nothing on board that would have made you sort of say, God, there's something happened out there, you know. My father and them, I think, had to go out about quarter past three, but they reckon they reached the grounds about between five and half five. So, um that literally only reached the grounds when... Three generations of the same family, a grandfather, father and son, all called Michael Green, are missing. The signs are not good. They left the port of Kilkeel County Down early yesterday morning to go fishing for prawns at the mouth of Callingford Lock. Conditions were very calm at the time. The boy was on his half-term break, leaving him free to go on the trip. Concern grew when there was no communication from the vessel yesterday evening. A huge search operation involving fishermen and rescue services from the UK and the Republic is now underway. Yes, I can remember getting a phone call saying there's a boat missing. Um, and I remember going, coming down to the harbour. The people were beginning to gather at the harbour to find out what was happening. I remember going to the Greens. I remember being with them. Um, the pictures are real in my mind. It's difficult to sort of know how to pray 
especially when um, we know the lifeboat's out. We can pray for the, the safe recovery, but sometimes we know if a ship has gone down, there's no sign, there's no sign of a life raft. Um, the, the chances of survivors are then, is then limited. We were extremely close, as I say. I mean, there only was myself and my two brothers when we grew up. And we were out on our own in the country, so I only ever had them to muck about with or carry on with. And that made us even closer. And, you know, nobody got past Michael. I mean, when I was going out with boys, it was they had to go through Michael first, you know. But um, in a way, I look back on it and I really, I really, really cherish it because I really had such a wonderful, happy childhood and that overcomes the bad. Michael was three years older than me, but it felt like a year. As you get older, I suppose the three years seem nothing. But when we were younger, like, I suppose, you know, we did boss about a bit like older brothers do. But, like, there was five years between Michael and Jeffrey, my younger brother, and that didn't seem matter either, you know. The years weren't there, really. <clears throat> Michael was extremely young at heart. Always loved Christmas. Um, loved children. Totally adored children. And was, like my father, he was totally devoted to his wife. They were just... Michael and Kathleen, to me, were a double of my own mother and father. Extremely happy didn't have very much but were extremely happy they had each other and they had their family and their health and we were all the same I mean we've all been brought up that way if you have your health you have everything Christmas always wonderful in our house because daddy and mummy just loved Christmas daddy was only 20 when Michael was born so he was a young granda <laughs> for to have a 14, 13 year old granddaughter he was extremely young I suppose he had um, arthritic pains, or I mean, he, he had arthritis in his hip joints and three quarter way up his spine. But in saying that, he he did his best. You know, it didn't. He didn't. He would have joked with the children and carried on with them as much as he possibly could have. But um, full of fun and devilment, really. <laughs> and at Michael and Jeffrey both. And I suppose myself, in a way, if I was honest, to take after him. Michael was uh, had just got on the Monday before he went out. Um, he had just got a, a health check done for the long distance lorry driving, and he had got all clear and everything, and um, got his photographs and that taken. But his photographs were they weren't Michael, if if that. If you can understand me, there were. It was like it was Michael, but it was a haunted look of Michael. It was really the scare me even looking at them yet. They weren't the brother I knew. They're weird looking. It was like a haunted look on his face, as if you know, this is me taking photographs and might as well not bother. You know, it was really weird. I know that sound. It does sound weird, but he had his sea survival suit on him in the picture. So he had, and it was as if to say, you know, there's really no point in me getting these photographs. You know, it's just a haunted look on his face. 
it's just you, you interpret it out of the photograph. I mean, it, it's just not, I don't know if you've mentioned anything like that, but it's just what we look at in the photograph and we think, you know, because other photographs, he's always grinning and smiling and real cheesy, you know, but he wasn't in this one. He wasn't looking forward to decommissioning the boat. He was looking forward to being a lorry driver, yeah, but he'd never worked on land, ever. So, um, I don't know, I, I just... I could never have seen Michael on land working from school. He, he was on the boat. He was only fourth year at school and he gave up his last year at school. I mean, he was going to fishing anyway. And um, he went straight to fishing with Daddy. We Michael just, he was just a gem. A wee devil, but a gem. Um, we lived beside him, I, can't, I don't even know how many years, from he was born up till about six years or so before they died. So he was maybe four or five whenever we left Ballykeel Court. And um, he cried because we were leaving. Because there only was our family, Michael's family, in the estate to play with at the time. And uh, I remember saying to the three of them, don't worry, you sure, I'm, you sure come on to stay in my house tonight. You know, my first night in, I, pr- I promised you, I promised them at the start when we were building the house that the three of them would be staying with me the first night. And I think he thought we'd forgot. And he, he started to cry. And my husband, he broke down, he started to cry. <laughs> so we went back down the road and took the three of them up. But he was, oh, he loved football and just a wee devil. I mean, they had... A wee mini dash hound, two mini dash hounds, and one had just given birth to a wee pup just in the January, and he couldn't wait to get this pup up to an older age where it would be able to tease it. And he was teasing it, and it wasn't even hardly able to move, you know. But he was—he was a lovable child, such a lovable child. Even though Daddy and Michael were getting out of the fishing, we Michael was determined he was going to fish when he got older. I think if you allow fear to dominate you, you wouldn't go to sea. And uh, so it's respect for the sea. They know it can be treacherous. They know it in a minute, in a second, a wave can change your life forever. I loved the sea right up until about... Um, 1985 I started to sort of dislike it then my uncle was drowned in the harbour and I got a fear for it because I thought if this happens in the harbour what can happen when they're out at sea but I always prayed I mean that's the only thing you can do I mean when it's in their blood you can't ever change them there's always the fear um, continual fear of fishing and the harm I mean the dangers are there there's always that fear no matter how big the boat is it's small compared to the sea and um, when you've only got that small amount of space and such a big expanse of sea there's nothing really you can do and out there I don't think it matters I think once 
you go into the water, it's so cold. You don't have much time. My sister-in-law phoned the Coast Guard um, to say that she wasn't able to contact her husband and my father and that her wee son was on the boat. And um, my mum went up the road, must have been around two, two, three o'clock, and um, I mean, I had my three children with me at this stage and they had supposed to be skilled the next morning. So I said to Mummy, I'll go home, leave the children off and come back in. But she was adamant I'd go home. And um, she went up the road and Thomas lives just across the road, Daddy's older brother. Now, Daddy just looked up to Thomas totally. She went across, or she phoned Thomas over and she told Thomas that Daddy and Michael and the child hadn't come in. And Thomas, I think Thomas came over to Mummy's and Mummy went and got Jeffrey and Patricia. They lived up just up the yard a bit from Mummy and them. And um, at five o'clock, Mummy then phoned the Coast Guard and told them that reported the same as Kathleen had done previously. And they said that they were already trying to contact the boat. And Mummy said, look, they've been gone more than 24 hours. You know, I'm really, really extremely worried. They've got an eight-year-old on board. And um, they said they were sending Nimrod out in daybreak, so that's what they've done. So we got a phone call here at five to say that Nimrod was being sent out. Five in the morning, five o'clock Friday morning. And on the 15th of uh, February 2002... Uh, we had a report of what was at that time a missing persons report three members of the Green family missing Uh, during the the 15th day that certainly uh, changed to a more serious incident uh, with the the clear understanding that the Tullamore Lass had foundered and uh, the three three, uh, members of the Green family uh, three Michaels as have become known as Uh, perished. Uh, From a policing point of view we were keeping in contact with the the Green family and we had a liaison uh, people identified to work with the families. Uh, Throughout the the 15th uh, we became aware of uh, pieces of the uh, Tullamary last being discovered at sea and that confirmed that the tragedy had taken place. It's important I think it, people don't bring false hope. Um, people talk too much sometimes and bring, rather than leave it to those that are involved to deal with the problem and to answer the family, uh, speculation is, 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 people speculate as to what is actually happening there and they don't know. And that was one of the great problems we faced was speculation done probably the best of intentions but and maybe thought at the same time they're bringing comfort but speculation can be dangerous what do you say you say little give facts straight facts as they are um, and not to speculate and not to bring false hope um, because they are looking for hope but if you start giving false hope and that hopes are dashed. That's, that's cruel to them. So you try and bring the story back to them as it really is at that point in time. 
I went down to the harbour on the 14th night um, with the new vehicle that we had bought because I had said to my dad with his arthritic spine, I said, you know, dad, I actually, I called him daddy. I said, daddy, you know, it has heated seats. And this is a big thing, like, you know, for us. I guess it'd be great for your back. And I says, I'll be down at the harbour tomorrow evening to pick you up. I went down to the harbour. And we stayed till 1.30 in the morning. And I knew then. I knew we were, we were talking bodies then. Because my father never, or my brother, never... They would maybe have been half an hour, never ever anything more. If they said they were coming in at half six, they were in between half six and seven. They said they would be in around six, between six and seven. Well, you knew that's the time they would have been in. They didn't come in. And we watched every boat, me and my mother. I mean, I had been out to Kathleen's and said, you know, we were trying to phone the boat, we can't get no answer. and. There was 313 calls or something made to Michael's mobile that night. And obviously none of them were answered because <laughs> the clip was found on the one of the windows of the wheelhouse. And um, where I think the phone maybe was in his pocket, I don't know. I mean, he kept everything in his survival suit, which he wasn't wearing because he was in bed. No, we knew that night. We were talking bodies. Even Kathleen knew, yeah. One man being lost is a tragedy for that family, but the Greens, obviously, with little Michael being aboard and with the hunt for the Torrey lass, and it went on for such a long period of time, and then the question, was there bodies aboard, weren't there aboard, and rumours going round as to what was actually happening, made it very, very difficult, and, of course, it got high priority and publicity in the press, and this made it very difficult for the family. But again, talking to other families around, when there is a tragedy, it brings home to them their tragedies that they have experienced over the years. I remember one man saying, I can, and he was in his 80s, saying, I can still see my crew in the water. Looking back on it, it was like a daze. You know, I can't remember it. There's bits of it I can remember and bits I can't remember. Um, obviously, the Friday, the 15th was the big day that you do remember and it'll always stick by you because there was the plane was hovering over my own house out around the, the villa out around the sea here and um, you know I, you just it seems as if you're living in a, in a nightmare and you're going somebody's going to pension you're going to wake up you know but it doesn't happen it's like it was just like a long wake because there was people continually coming. You know, it wasn't just the two days that people maybe seen on TV or whatever, or the day of the funeral. It was eight and a half weeks of people coming every day, and only for them people, we would never have coped. I mean, you were torn between two homes. I'm extremely close to both of my brothers, but I used to live next door to my brother Michael. And um, I was really close to my dad. And um, I was up home every day, and I was at Michael's every day. And my other brother lives up home, so I was always seeing them every day as well. But you were torn between 
if you're not home you felt guilty because you thought you should have been in Michael's house with Kathleen because of the girls as well and Kathleen and you felt then you should have been at home with Mummy when you were at Kathleen's and Michael's you know and it, you just were torn between the two of them Really, really, it became clear that the, the vessel had foundered and uh, using sonar and uh, every every available piece of equipment, they were searching uh, square, squares of, square grids of the, of the area to try and locate the Tullymurray last. And at the same time, everyone in the, in the area wanted to, wanted to help and, and they were searching beaches to, to try and find some sort of... Uh, Anything that would, would be connected with the Tullamary Last to give us some sort of steer as to where the vessel was. This is the thing, when there is a tragedy, people begin to gather. Uh, families come round, the community comes round to support those that are going through the trauma. It's, it's the same in every fishing village, every fishing port. As soon as they hear there's a tragedy, uh, people are touched and they, they would go and surround the family and just to be with them and say, look, we're here with, your, with you. Sometimes, like the Greens, it went on. Prayers weren't answered immediately. Uh, we don't know why. We're praying the bodies would be recovered and praying that they would find comfort and strength and that the bodies would be recovered and it would help them to, to bring comfort to them that their loved ones was, was home and that rest. Because that was important for them. They knew that point, yes, after it, after it, once wreckage was found, they knew they were looking for bodies. You do fear it. I mean, every time that we went out when we were younger, like we were a Catholic family, um, we were brought up. My father wasn't over religious, but he was very strict at us going to chapel, going to confessions, communion, whatever. And he was adamant about prayers and what have you, very, very much so, as was my brother. But um, that was all we could do. I mean, Daddy, yes, I suppose he, when I say he wasn't overholy, he was in a way because he had everything blessed. The boat was blessed. You know, he had holy pictures in the boat. He had blessed salt in the boat. He had holy water in the boat. He had everything like that. But um, I, every, I suppose, every fishing town or village or whatever and every fishing family would understand by saying, yes, you do fear. Every time they go out around that pier, are they going to come home? I've always prayed anyway, but it was the one thing that kept us close and kept us going the whole time they were missing was the prayers and the people. It's now more than a month since the Tullamurray last disappeared. The Green family have now sadly accepted that they won't see their loved ones again. I'm joined on the line by Sergeant Elvin Leach, who's in charge of the underwater search unit in Kilkeel. You have located the boat. What can you tell us? Well, um, the boat was located last evening by the fisheries protection vessel, the Ken Vickers. It was located by Sidescan Sonar. Uh, we were immediately alerted to be on standby to go and investigate this sonar reading. We went to uh, Kilkeel this morning at first light and went out aboard the Ken Vickers uh, to a position approximately seven miles uh, east of Kilkeel. Uh, there we, uh, we commenced our diving operation. Uh, we found on the bottom uh, the wreck of a fishing vessel which we 
identified as that of the Tullamore Lass. She's sitting in 42 metres of water uh, on a sandy seabed and she's sitting upright. Uh, in our uh, dives today, and our investigations today, we have seen no signs of any human remains. April the 12th, uh, I accompanied uh, Elvin and his diving team on board the Ken Vickers crew out to the dive scene seven miles east of Kilkeel. And uh, as I understand it, and as I say, it was an education for me. There was zero visibility at stages on the, on the seabed, but nevertheless, his diver was able to recover uh, Edward Michael Green, which is the grandfather, uh, to the surface. Now, we understood, we knew we couldn't go back out again the sea, to, to the scene, and we knew it would be the following day, and I don't think there was any of us, including Elvin's diving team and the, the crews of the Ken Vickers. I don't think any of us had a peaceful night's sleep, knowing that the family had one body home, and it was vitally important that the, the other two would be brought home as well. Uh, Kathleen, young Michael's mother, had specifically asked me uh, that if we had discovered the bodies that we wouldn't leave young Michael down there on his own. So uh, we made a, a conscious effort um, on the Saturday morning to remove, his, remove him before his father. Uh, so we recovered him to the surface first um, and then his father was, was, was recovered last, uh, which was, was harrowing. It was, uh, it was really uh, one of the hardest things that we have, we have had to do was to bring those bodies ashore um, to the family uh, at Warren Point Harbour. Um, and I don't think there was a dry eye uh, on the quayside. Um, all these supposed uh, roughy tufty uh, policemen and roughy tufty divers, and we were all standing crying our eyes out. One of the bodies was found uh, at night, and it was it was poignant. It was dark, and then the next day, I think my wife opened the curtains, and we knew by this time that there was the other two bodies was on the boat, and I think she summed it up as by saying it was like a resurrection, and I happened to say this to one of the Greens. So my wife just said this morning. It's like a resurrection. He said, that's funny. He said, I just drew back my curtains. He said, I just thought about the same. He said, it reminded me of the resurrection. Because it was around Easter time. And it, it reminded us of our Lord's resurrection. Never forget it. <laughs> I'll never forget it. My daughter, uh, Michael's daughter, Stephanie, the, the second eldest girl, um, she was the three, two, my sorry, my daughter Michaela and Stephanie were both making their confirmation that year, and my daughter, my youngest daughter, was making her communion along with wee Michael, supposedly. But um, the confirmation was first to come up, and um, it was about two and a half weeks before the confirmation. We decided it was a Friday night. We decided right, we're going to have to go and get something for confirmation because we had nothing. 
you know, they still didn't give us much hope of getting bodies at that stage. And we didn't know that they had actually, the divers had decided to dive on the boat that night, that day or that evening. And myself, my mum and my sister-in-law, Patricia, Jeffrey's wife, uh, and Michaela went up to Nuri to shop to see if we could get something um, up in the butter crane. And we were just into the butter crane when we got a phone call to say that Daddy's body was on board the Ken Vickers, which, which was the the, the um, fisheries vessel that brought them in. And uh, it was total mayhem to get down the road, you know. I know it was only from Nuri to one point, but it was just, it seemed like forever. And Friday night in, in Nuri is just chaotic. So, yes, we... It would have been about seven o'clock... So then we, we knew we had all planned where the bodies were going because we wanted it pri- as private as possible. I mean, nobody knew they were going till one point because we thought if we bring them to Kilkeel, it'll be all press and we just felt we needed time on our own with them. And then on the Friday evening, Daddy's body came up, but we weren't allowed near him. But it wasn't even that. They were in body bag. He was in a body bag, obviously. But he... We just wanted to go over. He was still wearing his boots. And we just felt, you know, it would be nice to go over and say, you know, Dad, we're here. You know, we're here for you. You know, and uh, I think Ronnie, the policeman, he he was brilliant, so he was. You know, and I think he was doing it for our own good, really. Um... He was trying to sort of ease it on us, that it wouldn't be so tough, you know, to try and go over and touch a body bag and knowing you can't open it. You know, I think that was... So did you went, did you were able to touch the body bag? No, no, no. no. no we not lied near it. Just from a distance? Well, it was a few feet, three, four feet away. Um, but it's a long distance whenever you haven't seen them in eight weeks, eight and a half weeks. They brought Daddy's body up first. Elvin Leach, the head diver, he said to us that he brought Daddy's body up, obviously because Daddy was on top of the two other ones. So um, he said he thought it would be better and he thought it would be what Daddy would have wanted because he would like Michael and the child to spend the last night together on the boat. And on the Saturday, we waited. And at four o'clock, we got the phone call to say that they were on their way with my brother and my nephew and uh, it was devastating it was very hard because the press tried to get in um, I understand they've done a great job for us I mean only for them we would have been totally lost you know only for the press you wouldn't have had the, the coverage but it was a private time it was a time that we needed on our own. And Michael's two girls, well, one, I think, maybe two, I don't know, two girls were there. And um, to see a father and son's body coming up in body bags, it's not a nice sight. You know, and no one that the child was coming up, and he was the first one up, and Michael's body was on the boat. And these photographers were photographing me, Michael's body coming up. And it wasn't to the next day that it re- we realised that the war photographers 
We thought they were the um, the boat that comes in ahead of the canvickers to guide them into the warm point, but it wasn't. We didn't know who they were, but apparently they had paid somebody on the other side to let them have a boat or something. And um, we'll never know that. I don't know if that's right or not, but this is what we were told. And um, just to then after that terrible shock of having to see the two bodies coming up, especially an eight-year-old and a 32-year-old man, or 33-year-old man, I'm sorry. Um, plus she'd been through the previous night of Daddy. And then Sunday morning you wake up and you open your Sunday paper. You don't even open it, it's on the front page. Body bag. It was devastating. I mean, I do understand the way the press works, and I do understand, and we thank them immensely. But just that one day, they could have just given us it. It brought a certain type of closure because it was they wanted the, their loved ones home and they felt they could put them to rest. I remember a widow of, in, her, in her 80s saying to me, um, at least I know where my husband's body is, I know where he is, and some of his crew wasn't found, but he was found. At least I know where my husband is. And I felt sorry for those who don't know. And this was uh, something that happened in the 50s in the, in, when she was in her 30s, and this is uh, 50 years later, not knowing. But she knew, and she said, at least I know I've got that comfort, and I've got that strength to know that my husband's body is at rest back home. I mean, to be able to give them the burial that we know they would have wanted was, it was great. You know, yes, we couldn't see them. I mean, the coffins were closed. But we all got to put in our wee bits that we felt made us, you know, it was sort of, maybe people would think it's strange, but we pen photographs of the children and that, and we notes and silly wee things, I suppose. But um, they meant a lot to us. You know, whenever you go into a room, and there's two, in my, in my brother's house, there was a white coffin and a, a wooden brown coffin with lids on. To me, it was two boxes. And my sister-in-law say the same. And in my father's house, it was a, a wooden box. I wanted to see my dad. I didn't want to see a coffin. I wanted to see my brother and my nephew. Give them a kiss and say, we'll love you. We'll see you again. But it wasn't meant to be. I mean, they were very private people. And maybe... That was the reason that the coffins were closed, or you know, the reason that the were so long away was because they didn't want to be found. They wanted the coffins to be closed. I don't know. I mean, I'll never know. Hopefully, one day we do see them again. I think there's very little one can say to them. You just you're alongside them. You listen to them rather than me trying to talk. I think it's important I listen to them and let them talk. Let them express their feelings. Um, there's no words really to say, just to be alongside and to say, look, we're thinking of you, we're there with you, the community's there with you. Um, and we seek to bring comfort, we're praying for you, just to, assure, to reassure them that we are praying for them and we're alongside them. I think sometimes they can't pray themselves, perhaps. Uh, they don't know what to pray. Their mind's in a turmoil. 
and you're there supporting them, just to be there. I think it's like the the poem, you know, the footsteps. And you look back and say, there's only one set. And where the Lord says, well, that was my set. I was carrying you. And we have to do that ministry of carrying them through that tragedy and help them through it because um, their minds in a turmoil, physically, mentally, spiritually. Why? 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 And there's no answer. There's no answer to that why. We don't know. Oh, you continually ask yourself. I mean, myself and my sister-in-law, we would be very, we are extremely close. I mean, we were close anyway, but now that Michael is gone, we're really close. Um, myself and her would be, if I'm not in her house, she's in my house, so it would be a talk about, it's always Michael, the child and dad. It, it always you know, comes back to that, and if they had been here, and what, how did they cope, or... You know, what really happened? You know, you're always asking yourself that. For my sister-in-law, Kathleen, and for my mum, and for all of us, I mean, Jeffrey, myself, you know, the children have been through hell and back. All of us, you know, because we were such a close, really, really close-knit family. It has been hell because you're continually asking yourself, you know, did they suffer or was it quick? And then you think to yourself, right, well, if they had time to get together, they had had time to think. And you do, you do, there's many a night, you cry yourself to sleep. And my sister-in-law and her two wee girls, I mean, it's only hitting my brother's eldest wee girl now. And she is, she keeps looking for her daddy. She had a picture above her bed that when she closes her eyes it's him she closes her eyes to and it's him that she wakes up to in the morning and my mother just can't even go home it hasn't got any easier I mean you just learn to live with it but your pain gets deeper Valentine's Day to Daddy was just another day, and Mummy. It's hard, but <laughs> Daddy wasn't a romantic. <laughs> he would have been in in small ways, meaningful ways, not cards or flowers or. But uh, my brother was a romantic, big romantic, and um, he had left Kathleen the most beautiful Valentine's card. And it was the most beautiful verse that he'd wrote himself. He had worded it so beautifully. And Kathleen didn't give Michael her Valentine's card because she thought he would bring in. And um, that broke her heart. That really broke her heart. That she held on to that Valentine's card for eight and a half weeks and put it in a coffin. But they would have been 13 years married in the June. And Michael never ever was out with another girl, only Kathleen. Kathleen was just his his princess, as he used to say. She'll never get over that. I mean, my mum's heart found it extremely hard. And, like, she's not an old woman either. I mean, she's only coming 55 herself this year. 
So her and Daddy, I mean, her and Daddy had never been out with anybody else, only themselves, each other, you know, that was it. So they were childhood sweethearts too, so, I mean, it does, it, it's devastating because both of them, both, you know, Kathleen, Michael, Mummy and Daddy, they didn't go anywhere without the other. It makes you wonder why people so good and so devoted to one another are taken, are separated. Why take the good, but then say the good always go first? <laughs>